Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? I am going through a bit of a cushion phase, I think we could say. The sofas were looking quite bare in the lounge, so I decided I would get one cushion for each of the three sofas. So I acquired the cushion. And while I was getting those, I could see some other cushions couldn't really choose, make my mind up. Well, the next day I was then getting more cushions. And now the next day I've got even more cushions. And now my family are not, I'm not happy with how they're organising them. I've got to set way the cushions go on the sofas. Nobody's paying any attention to it. Nobody wants to sit with the cushions so the cushions then get thrown on the floor. This is outrageous, isn't it? Cushion gate. Here we are. This is happening. So I feel like I need to take a photo of the cushions on the sofas in the way I like them. There is a set way. And then I need to hand these photos out to the family so that they can follow my instructions. They're not going to, are they? Just as I'm merely saying that out loud, I realise that is not going to happen. But never mind. Anyway, what is going to happen today? Some chat, some book chat. We've got some brilliant books to talk to you about. Well, four brilliant books. One was brilliant to start with and I lost my way a bit, but that's probably my fault. And we've got a listener's question Debbie has contacted me with a really brilliant question. I've got my views as an answer, but I'd welcome your views as well. So without further ado, what books are we featuring today? We are featuring The Last Goodbye by Tim Weaver. I'm really excited about that book. The Birdcage Library by Freya Berry. Really excited about that book. Will you read this, please? That's not me saying it. That's the title of the book, which is edited by Joanna Cannon. I yeah, really want to talk to you about that book. Also, Home Fire by Camilla Shamsey. And finally, Frontier by Grace Curtis. So quite a selection of books. All fiction. Actually, no, no. Will you read this, please? Is absolutely not fiction. So one non-fiction and four fiction. Let's get started straight away. The last goodbye, Tim Weaver. You absolutely have to listen to the blurb of this one because I listened to the blurb and I was just like, I need to read this book and I need to read it now. Listen to this. A father and his son are queuing for the ghost house at the country's newest theme park. CCTV cameras record them entering, but they never exit. No one can explain how they vanished. When she was three, Rebecca Murphy's mother suddenly walked out and never came back. Now Rebecca asks missing persons investigator David Raker to find out what happened. The two disappearances, decades apart seem unrelated. But as Raker digs deeper, he unravels an elaborate history of lies, binding the cases together. Worse, there's someone determined to make sure the truth never comes out. And let's go to Tim to read us the first few sentences now. When the video starts, there's no queue outside the ghost house. It's early evening, only just opening time. It's still an hour and a half before they vanish. It doesn't take long for guests to start arriving. A couple of minutes in, two teenage girls walk run through the snaking barriers to the front of the line and, when they see the, the first on the ride, start to talk excitedly. A staff member, poised just inside the darkness of the entrance, comes out. He's dressed to match the Himalayan theme of the ride. Dark trousers, a battered snow jacket, 
woolen gloves, robe tucked into his belt and a head torch. He says something to the girls and they smile again. And then a moment later, they disappear into the dark. Wow, what a book. What a book. I mean, Tim Weaver is just one of those authors. If he's got a book out, I want to read it. And I haven't read all of them in the David Raker series, I admit, but that gives no less enjoyment, I think, to the books. I just think he's um, a highly accomplished author. He always delivers. He's an author you can trust. But enough about me waffling about this brilliant book. Let's go and talk to Tim now. Well, it is my absolute hugest of huge pleasures to welcome to the podcast today, Tim Weaver, whose latest simply fabulous book is The Last Goodbye. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with the first basic obvious question. Can you give us a bit of a summary about this book? Yeah, so the new book is called The Last Goodbye, and it's about a, well, it's actually about two separate disappearances. The book begins with one where a father and son turn up at a, a new theme park that's just opened in the UK, and they, they rush into the theme park and go to the ghost house, queue up for the ghost house, and they, they go inside the ghost house, but they never come out again, so impossible as it seems somewhere inside this haunted house they've completely vanished into thin air and alongside that is a case that the raker picks up initially which is david raker my series character picks up initially which is a woman whose mother walked out on her when she was three years of age with no explanation never came home again and she still has no idea almost 40 years later what happened to her mum and she wants to find some closure about it so she hires david raker to kind of look into it and see see what happened to her mum and uh, you know you don't need a don't need to be uh, to be much of a, much of a guesser of twist to realize that these two things are end up being connected and and raker is soon dealing with a much more complex case than than he thought at first and what what a great book it is why did you want to write this particular book now was with the particular reasons for it the daughter who's looking for a mother is a character called rebecca murphy who was actually the main character in my standalone that I wrote a couple of years ago called Missing Pieces. And in that book, in the background of this standalone is this mystery about why her mum walked out on her and, it, and, and you know, it, she doesn't get any conclusion in Missing Pieces. And then I did a short story collection called The, Sh called the Shadow at the Door a couple of years ago. And in that, Raker and, and, and Rebecca end up meeting because Raker's in, in New York meeting a meeting a friend and so they sort of just get chatting and and he gives her a card and says you know if you want me to look into what happened to her you know give me a give me a call because rebecca's actually she's british but she lives in new york and so but her mum disappeared when she was younger and they were living over here in the uk so raker's sort of good in a good place to kind of look into it and so that's where the last goodbye really started was this desire to kind of continue Rebecca's story and find out why her mum disappeared and what and what happened to her. And also at the same time, you know, like previous book in the David Raker series, The Blackbird, you know, without giving anything away, kind of finishes on a fairly hefty cliffhanger and it's carried over, you know, I had to carry over some of that stuff to, to it's difficult to talk about it because it's such a massive spoiler talking about what happened, but. You have to carry over some of that, for want of a better word, baggage, you know, into the new, you have to, you have to bring over that storyline and you have to conclude it in a way that is satisfying for readers. Cause the thing about a cliffhanger is you can't set up a cliffhanger and they're not deliver on the cliffhanger. So the last goodbye really was, was quite a complicated book in some ways, because I was doing something I'd never done before, which is I set up both. I had to solve this, you know, had to bring this cliffhanger moment to a conclusion in the new book. I'd also set up the idea that Raker was going to be looking into what happened to Rebecca's mum in The Blackbird, so that had to carry over. And then at the same time, I wanted to introduce a disappearance that that had a real kind of hook, you know, something that is very, very easy for readers to to understand in, and all the Raker books are about mysterious and unexplained disappearances. And although I love telling Rebecca's, the story about Rebecca's mother in this book, and although it was one I definitely wanted to do, it's not, it wasn't hooky in the same way that, you know, some of the books in the series have been, you know, so other books in the series about a guy that vanishes on a, you know, busy commuter packed tube train or 
you know, a family vanishes in the middle of having dinner or a whole village disappears. All these things are kind of very hooky. And so that was where the, the idea for the father and son vanishing inside the ghost house came from. And then the tricky thing with The Last Goodbye and the reason that it was one of the most difficult, I think, books I've, I've ever written really was because you had all these elements kind of right at the start of the book that you then had to weave together and find a satisfying conclusion to. So, and, and, you know, because I don't plan my books, I didn't actually know where all those moments were going, you know? So e e even with Rebecca and the reason that her you know mother disappeared, I didn't really know what those reasons were. I didn't know when I was writing Missing Pieces and I didn't know when I started writing The Last Goodbye. So all of this was just like in the melting pot. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure if that's really answered your question because you asked why write this book now. I mean, I think it was more just like, I decided that I wanted to tell Rebecca's story and therefore every, and, and then I had all this other stuff to deal with in that carried over from the Blackbird. So it was just a kind of circumstance more than anything, I guess. What I also love about your books and I would commend them to anyone is that yes, there is this super story building through them. And yet you can, you can just pick up the last goodbye. You don't have to have read any of the other Raker books and you will be fully immersed. You won't think, gosh, I wish I had started with a different book. Yes, you can go back and then discover more. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's an important element, I think, to to the Raker series is that you can you can read them in any order and it really won't feel like you're you're missing out. I mean, that's not to say that, you know, long term readership doesn't carry some reward in as much as you then know all the backstories and where the journeys of all the characters and you know because the raker series is is not like say the reacher series where jack reacher goes from one one book to another and all the all the things that he's done before kind of get forgotten and written you know written off and it's just each book is like a a new adventure without any reference to the old ones with the raker series it's i suppose it's more like the harry bosch series or something like that you know where all the scars that he, he he gets over the years, all the cases that he works, they have an accumulative effect on him and uh, on the decisions he makes. But, you know, you can, loads and loads of people have, have got in touch with me since The Blackbird came out and said, I've never read any of your books before and I never felt like I, you know, like I was missing out on anything. It could be read perfectly well as a standalone. And I think that's an important part of it because you don't want readers to feel like, they're missing out or that they're not part of the, this exclusive club that you have to have read it all in order. I think that's an important thing. And I think it's also important because when you write a series, you have to keep it feeling fresh. You can't rely on doing the same old things. And so an important part of that is making each book feel like a, a very individual, you know, individual kind of piece of work whilst threading through all these kind of subtle elements that reward long-term readers and it's kind of like subtle nods to past cases and past characters and all that kind of stuff. And I'm interested in the character Raker. I mean, I'm interviewing you today and I'm looking, you've got a, a t-shirt with Raker on your wall, which is great. He's obviously very important to you. Does he talk to you even when you're not writing the books? Yeah, he's always very present, I guess. You know, uh, I think the thing is, is that, uh, you know, I talked about this, my standalone missing pieces earlier and, you know, one of the challenges with that really was when I started it I didn't know any of the characters at all you know so you were kind of like getting to know these characters from from minute one you know you had no no knowledge of them at all and for me as a writer characters you know I say this often but it really is true characters don't come alive until you get them on the page so until you've got them until you're writing them and you're having them interact with one another and you're seeing how they behave in certain circumstances and that kind of stuff, you, you don't know who they are really. And so with Missing Pieces, I was finding out about that pretty much straight away. The good thing about writing Raker is I know him so well at this point. The discovery in, in the Raker books is not necessarily about him as a person, although there are lots of times where things he's ended up doing or rather I've made him end up doing or decisions he's made have actually been surprising. What's good is that straight away I know him as a character. So I, my thinking is really to do with the bigger picture stuff, which is always going to make this book bigger and better and more exciting than, than the previous one. And I place great emphasis on doing that at the beginning of every book is to try and make each one, you know, we talked 
just now about how making each one feel like a standalone, but an important part of it is making each book feel like it's not relying on the same old, you know, same old mechanics every time. And I do feel like you have your own sort of subgenre of books, a Tim Weaver book. I know what I'm going to get from it. I know I'm going to be surprised and thrilled and want to keep turning the pages and rewarded as well for that. And I do feel that your books are slightly different to, to everything else in a positive way. Was that a deliberate aim of yours when you started writing? Yeah, I mean... Missing people really wasn't a wasn't a sort of subgenre that was particularly well represented when I started. You know, there was really only Harlan Coben and Linwood Barclay that were writing regularly about missing people, and of course, they're both set their books in the in the U.S. You know, so there was certainly nothing in the in the U.K. that was like that. And the other thing was that there was certainly no one investigating missing people as part of a series. You know, so. I saw a sort of corner of the market that I might be able to make my own. So it was, you know, on some level of a commercial decision, I suppose, because I thought, you know, if people remember you as the missing persons guy, it's not the worst thing in the world because at least they remember you for something, you know, like there's a lot of books out there, a lot of books competing for your attention and, you know, to be remembered is, is useful, you know. But obviously, at the same time, you have to back that up. You can't just like be the missing persons guy and people aren't going to come back whether you've got a, you know, carved out an area of a subgenre of yourself or not. They're not going to come back if your books aren't any good. So, you know, from from very from the very first book, you know, one of the things that I placed great emphasis on was twists, but twists done in a way that kind of like... When they when they happen, you 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 like, oh, right? You understand why they've happened. It's not one of these twists where, and it's this guy, and you're like, well, who's that again? But I mean, in, you know, away from writing, I, I love traveling and football and lots of other things, ice cream and books and films and TV and all sorts of all sorts of stuff. Well, just a quick question: You mentioned ice cream, and I saw in, in some notes on you that yeah, ice cream is one of your things. What's your top flavor ice cream? Oh man, now you're talking. Now you're talking my kind of language. Well, I would say I would say there are several contenders. It depends. Like if you're if you're really going posh, then you know, like uh, like do like a bit of Ben and Jerry's. I like a, a bit of Ben and Jerry's uh, cookie dough. I like Hagen Dazs salted caramel is the best salted caramel I've ever had. But if you're out and about and like getting a, something from a shop or whatever you know you can't whack a good mint magnum so yeah i mean i'm just a i mean ice cream is definitely my that's my like downfall you know like i could i could eat ice cream all day like i could i could give up anything but i would find it very very hard to give up <laughs> ice cream i absolutely love ice cream but of course it's not particularly good for you so i try to limit my ice cream intake but but I do love it. Well, we come to the last question, which is going to be an interesting one now based on the ice cream. I may not apply, but I'll ask it because it is the most important question on this podcast. And I ask it for every author. What is your biscuit of choice, Tim? What biscuit powered the writing of The Last Goodbye? I try not to eat too many of them because they're so addictive. We do have them in the house, but I limit myself to two a day with my afternoon coffee. And that is Lotus Biscot. I absolutely love them. I can't get enough of them. The worst thing that ever happened was when Lotus unleashed their Lotus Biscoff spread onto the world <laughs> because that is just like un unreal. Like I can't get enough of that stuff. But we've had to stop buying it because it's just <laughs> just I just can't can't be doing with it. So so yeah, I have two of those in the afternoon, and um, and they are. The good thing about them is that compared to like a hobnob or whatever, they're quite they're low they're lower calorie, so you don't feel as bad having them. But but they are they are delicious. Yeah, they they definitely help power the last goodbye. So we need a biscoff ice cream. Would that be the the ultimate? Well, they do do one in some places. We went to my wife's South African, and we went to South Africa, went to Cape Town at Christmas, and I had the best lotus biscoff ice cream I've ever ever had in Cape Town. It was amazing. Um, immediately I finished it and I said to my wife, cool, I would, I, do you think it would be too much to have a second one? She was like, 
Yes. Yes, it would. So, <laughs> so I only had it once, but it was delicious. So yeah, more, I'm sure there, I'm sure it is readily available somewhere, but it's best not if I don't, I don't want to go down that route because it's just too dangerous. <laughs> well, it's just been wonderful to talk to you, Tim. Honestly, it really has. And to hear more about Raker and your latest book, The Last Goodbye. Tim Weaver, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Coming up, one more author interview, more book reviews and a listener's question. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. So let's get stuck into the next book, which is The Birdcage Library by Freya Berry. And let me read you the blurb of this delight. Are you ready for this? Dear reader, the man I love is trying to kill me. It's 1932, an adventurous and plant hunter, Emily Blackwood, accepts a commission from Heinrich Vogel, a former dealer of exotic animals in Manhattan, living now with his macabre collection in a remote Scottish castle. Emily is tasked to find a long-lost treasure, which Heinrich believes has been hidden within the castle walls. But instead, she discovers the pages of a diary written by Hester Vogel, who died after falling from the Brooklyn Bridge. Hester's diary leads Emily to an old book and into a treasure hunt of another kind, one that will take her down a dangerous path for clues and force her to confront her own darkest secret. Discover a mystery within a mystery. <gasps> Let's hear Freya read us the first few sentences. Chapter One Every life has its own lie. I think of them as like plants. Lies, I mean. Doubtless this is due to my botanist profession. Some are tame and neat, cottage garden geraniums sprucing up the exterior. Others are subtler, wilier, their roots sunk deep. There is a third kind, the creepers, the vines, plants of the jungle, parasites. Lovingly, they reach up and in, entwining themselves with their host, slowly but surely leeching its life away. Excellent. I mean, if you're into your gothic suspense books this is it i enjoyed the dictator's wife which was freya's previous book and uh, yeah i enjoyed reading this let's go and talk to freya now well it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast freya berry whose wonderful book is called the birdcage library freya welcome to the podcast thanks so much oh it's great to have you on right let's start with the basics the real basics can you summarize this book for us yeah so the birdcage library it's uh it's a gothic mystery and and sort of a treasure hunt it's dual timeline set between a scottish castle in the 1930s and an exotic animal emporium in gilded age manhattan adventuress emily blackwood discovers an old diary hidden by a woman who fears the man she loves is going to kill her 
Emily gets drawn into uncovering Hester's fate, even as the walls around her begin to close in. So, yeah, if you like uncovering clues, Scottish castles, exotic animals, maybe some taxidermy, then this is for you. Us readers love stories about books. So this book is so enticing. <laughs> when you came up with the idea, were you like, yes, this is this is the one? <laughs> it was quite fun. I, I kind of knew I wanted to do a book about a book because at the heart of it all is this is is this book called The Birdcage Library, which is, yeah, a sort of compendium of cages, if you will. So, see, I've always loved that, yeah, that sort of detective um, vibe. I read a lot of, yeah, sort of 19th century female detective novels and so on to get into the, into the mood and had a lot of fun with that. Was it easy to get the publishers on board with this book? Because, you know, the premise of it just sounds so interesting. <laughs> yeah, they were they were great, actually. We worked on the two timelines sort of separately. The, the Gilded Age one in Manhattan concerning Hester Vogel is partly based on a real life animal dealers from that from that time, Charles and Henry Reich, they're called. And yeah, they were they were great in helping me develop that idea versus Emily Blackwood, who's this, yeah, this adventuress 50 years later. Um, and that was partly based actually on, on Freya Stark, who's my namesake. And my dad met her once. She was this uh, explorer and intelligence official. So I had a lot of fun sort of drawing inspiration from her and her amazing life. Oh, that's great. And your previous book was The Dictator's Wife, as as we know and love. But that's quite different. And I was thinking if somebody wants to follow you, wants to be a Freya Berry fan as they should be, what what defines you? Because you're not stuck to one genre. It's funny you say that, because when I think about the two books, I was I'm kind of worrying they might be a bit too similar in some ways. <laughs> they both, you know, have a gothic, claustrophobic vibe, which I love. You know, Rebecca is one of my biggest literary inspirations, Daphne du Maurier. And there's always a mystery at the heart. And yeah, I, I, I love tales of uncovering, of self-realization, of the cages we build others, and, and more importantly, the ones we build ourselves. And I think both mm. of those are present in in these two books. So so the setting is different and the, you know, this, the, the the subject is different, but actually these themes, I've, I, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with them. So I had fun with that. And the characters are just so good. And that's the thing that links your books as well, I think, these characters that you care about and Thank you. draw you in. Let, tell us a bit more about Emily and how she developed. Yeah, so Emily is a kind of a compendium in some ways of some of the female explorers that I, I was researching. So Freya Stark, I already mentioned, I came across her desk actually in a in a country house, yeah, sort of around like the map of the globe. And I just thought this is fantastic. I need to write about this woman. So her, Isabella Bird, early pioneers of the conservation movement like Harriet Hemingway and the founders of the RSPB, who were also women. So she... The thing about Emily is she's an inherent contradiction, like kind of I think all the best characters are. She's an explorer, but what she's really interested in doing is is not it's not so much about exploring the outer world, it's about running away from her inner world. So you have someone who's some busy trying to d- digs to dive so deeply into the world around that she doesn't have to confront herself. And Emily, again, as as many great characters do, has has a secret, and that is that goes to the very heart of her identity without giving too much away, and becomes absolutely key to um, how the story unfolds around her. And did any of the characters stay with you in your mind when you'd finished writing? Yeah, I missed. Well, it's it, you know, I think you miss your characters either way, or hopefully you do anyway, but I missed Hester a bit. Hester gets a, a kind of a love story and, well, yeah, she, do, she does get a love story, which which was fun to write. And there's something about writing women. She's living in, in, in Gilded, the Gilded Age era, so the end of the 1800s. And it's a time, obviously, where women are, you know, very sort of restrained in what they can do. And she's fighting constantly against that. She refuses to be caged. She is this wild animal that, um, that, that, that won't be locked away. And I read something about cages, which I thought was very wise while researching this. It says the thing about cages is they're about incarceration, but they're also about display. You know, it's about people being able to to look in and see the caged thing. And there are those that can t- consider the display element punishment. And that's mm-hmm. such a great encapsulation for, for womanhood and, and, and what feminism is trying to tackle. So, yeah, her issues and, and her character stayed with me, I think. 
So who would you have playing the characters, not if, but when it's made into a film? <laughs> Good, great question. I mean, I do like Saoirse Ronan a lot. I think she's so capable and I, I would love her to play Emily Blackwood. I think she'd be she'd be fantastic. Mm. Hester, I don't have anyone specifically in mind, but but I need I need Christopher Plummel for for Henry Vo- Heinrich Vogel. He's he's the old man who employs uh, who who employs Emily Blackwood on a mysterious commission. So yeah, I need to get him involved as well. <laughs> I love it. That's a plan. <laughs> Give me a call, guys. <laughs> yes. Was it hard to? plot and plan this book and how did you go about it so i yeah yes it was not helped by the fact that i'm not very good at planning i like to just sort of dive in and then regret later so but with a detective story you know it's obviously the greats like agatha christie and so on you can't not plan you have to have every element breadcrumbed and in order for the payoff to be satisfactory and true to itself so so yeah so i did a lot of yeah writing out what the clues would be how where they would where they would connect and so on i'd like I, I always tell myself I need to use some fancy tool like Scrivener or whatever. Actually, I just shut everything to, into a Word document and yeah, sort of <laughs> try and wait around in that. But yes, it did take a lot of planning. And actually, the detective element sprung up on me. It wasn't really meant to be a treasure hunt. And that's what it became. And when that happened, I knew the story was starting to live and breathe for itself. And that was that was always a really exciting feeling. And how did you get yourself in the zone for writing this book? Are, are the, is there particular music you play? Or do you have to dress in the age, depending on which time frame you're writing about? Or, <laughs> you know, how does it go? That's a great idea. I should have done that. Yeah. Oh my God. I should have like bought a stuffed bird hat or something. Yes. I regret not doing that now, maybe for the next book. <laughs> so yeah, I it, it was hard because I was in lockdown and I was writing a story about an adventuress while not being able to go anywhere. So I guess the that theme of imprisonment and cages kind of felt particularly pertinent. But I like to listen to, I do like to listen to music, not all the time, but I typically pick a song and just play it on repeat because then you don't get distracted. So listen to a lot of Lana Del Rey, a lot of Billie Eilish, sort of like gothic vibes. So, so that so that helps. Yeah, but other than that, I just try to go for long walks or just slide into that state of, you know, half focus, half relaxation and play, which I think is so important for writing. So if you could go back to when you were writing your first book, is there anything that you would change if you could? My God, I think, you know, you're always trying to become a better writer with sort of every every book, every chapter, every sentence. And, you know, when I, wrote, I started writing The Dictator's Wife when I was 26 and... You know, there's a certain pretentiousness that you get when you're when you're in your twenties, I think, and trying to trying to write a book. Maybe that's just me. So I would probably go over it and just tell myself to calm down a little bit. Like you don't have to use a sledgehammer sometimes to crack crack the nuts. But I, you know, I I'll always think very fondly of it. It was my first book, and you know, as I hopefully continue to write more, you know, I think that passion and not the joy of not really knowing what you're doing is something to to take with you because otherwise you know writing books is hard enough and uh, I sort of have to trick myself into doing it and this episode should be going out I think it's the 12th of June if if this works out right and your publication day is just shortly after the 22nd of June yes so can you talk us through what you plan to do on publication day for the birdcage <laughs> library well i accidentally slash deliberately tried to get glastonbury tickets so i'm actually going to clear glastonbury for the very first time <laughs> on that day i'm gonna arrive and uh, yeah i'm doing a talk in bristol the the night before <laughs> uh waterstones clifton but yeah i will be in glastonbury in situ and i think it'll be sort of probably a fitting metaphor for the chaos of publishing a book i'll just be surrounded by and all sorts of excitement so that's how I'll be celebrating. I'm going to get my nails done with the cover of the book, like I did for the dictator's wife. So big plans there. And then yeah, I've got a lot of I think a lot of, you know, prosecco to drink and <laughs> bookshops, book talks, all that kind of thing. So hopefully make it make it a celebration because it's a long road. So I was going to ask if, if you're going to Glastonbury for publication day, are you going to get wellies done up in the design of the Birdcage Library as well? Oh my God, that's what I need. That's definitely, yeah, some sort of teal and gold, get us like spray a cage on it. Great idea. Yes, because the 
everyone's there, all the cameras are there looking for the right opportunities to film. You need to get the book out there, Freya, come on. This is what I need. This is exactly what I need. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get on it immediately. <laughs> Instead of watching acts, you know, clapping your hands, you need to have the birdcage library holding it up for the camera. So true. Just sort of leave ca- copies around for amid the mud, exactly. Yes, <laughs> your commitment whole, whole to publication thing. day needs to be there, Freya, come on. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So here's an odd question. If for people that have read your books uh, and are really on side with Freya Berry, as they should be, what what don't we know about you? What fact would surprise us about you? Oh, my goodness. Philippa asking the easy questions today. I... I read a lot of a lot of fantasy, specifically a lot of fantasy, smutty fantasy novels. I have a bit of Sarah J. Mass, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a real thing, then. Oh, I, I I love her. Yeah, I just read her books and repeat. And actually, it was incredibly helpful because writing a when because writing a book is such a mental labour, and in terms of taking breaks, it's so nice to just be able to plunge into something else that's entirely other. And that's my excuse anyway. I'm sorry. I read I read her books on repeat, and I watched Vampire Diaries as well, and it was just a great a great time. It made my life so much better. So that's the great secret. Don't tell anyone. Don't worry. We're not we're not going to tell a soul. It's just between you, me, and the listeners. You're safe here. Perfect, guys. Keep. Keep it on the down low, yeah. <laughs> well, we come to the final question, which is the most crucial one here on this podcast, right? And it oh. is, when you were writing the Birdcage Library, what biscuit was powering the words? What was your biscuit of choice? Oh, such an important question. For me, it's always the Maryland chocolate chip cookies. It's it's classic. It's from my childhood. It dunks well. It, it melts well. It's 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 perfection. That's great. Is that just the because the, they do different flavors now? So you're going for just the standard chocolate chip here. Very true. Yeah, the standard is great. I mean, there's a hazelnut, there's a double double chocolate chip. There's there's a universe out there, but my heart belongs to the the original and still the best. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Can't wait to see people reading the book, and can't wait to see you at Glastonbury marketing <laughs> your book to the fullest. Freya Berry, whose latest book is The Birdcage Library. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Well, we've got three more books to review. But before we do that, we're hopping straight on to the listener's question because this is a question. Debbie emailed me and uh, she said, hello, Philippa. Hello, Debbie. Debbie is a real supporter of this podcast, by the way. So thank you, Debbie. You have always been there and I appreciate it enormously. I'm actually waggling my finger at the microphone now. This shows how much I mean that. So thank you. Debbie says, I wonder about the endorsement of other authors on book covers. I would like to believe they are all true, but are they? How does it work? If you've put a fantastic quote on my cover, will I do the same for you? I can see these sometimes and at times it has influenced a purchase. But am I right? to believe they are true. We'd love to hear on the podcast your knowledge and understanding of this genuine or fake from Debbie. Thank you so much for that question, Debbie. What a great question. Now, when I first saw that email, I thought, right, I'm going to ask authors that question. And it may be that in time I do start asking that because I think it is a really important one. But I've got to be honest, and I don't know, I don't know what whether we'll get the truth of the matter out. Part of me thinks it is highly convenient that there's always these glowing comments by authors on books and that they seem to comment on each other's. However, having said all of that, what I do see is proofs going to other authors very early on in the process, much earlier than I get the proof. So certainly they have seen sight of those books earlier on. I also see the authors reading them. You know, I follow them on social media as well and I can see them. Maybe they're away and they've read a book that's really moved them or that they've they've been thrilled by it or, you know, you almost see the, not the live reading, but the live responses to those proofs going out. And they are all, they are not all, they, a lot of them are good friends with each other. And I love that about the community of authors, that it's not a competition between each other. If they get someone on board who likes their books, then it's likely, you know, we're, 
avid readers. So it's not that we're just going to read one person's books and nobody else's. We want to just read more and more and discover more authors. So while there is that great friendship that I see with a lot of them, I don't believe that they would promote a book that they've read and thought that is a real dud. And there are some books I see that don't have the people quoting on them that I would imagine would be if it was just a free for all. And I think there are some books that I've picked up that don't have the quotes on from authors that I was expecting that have turned out to be ones that I wouldn't natch that I wouldn't that I don't enjoy as much. So I'm not able to give you a, a real answer, an, a full answer, Debbie, because I don't know. But my inclination is that yes, you're if you're a, a best bud of somebody who's written a book, you're more likely to pick that book up and read it. But I do feel that they would say either, actually, I haven't got this, maybe being polite, I haven't got the time to review it or it's not for me. So I do tend to trust those. What I don't trust is the, oh, Sunday Times bestseller, because they could have been on that list briefly 20 years ago, books change, authors change. So yeah, sorry, very long rambling answer to a brilliant question. But that's my view. I'm fascinated to know what everybody else listening to this thinks, because there's thousands of you listening to this. Let me know what your views are. Go to the Facebook group as well. You'd be so welcome to join us there. You can contact me on Instagram and Twitter and yeah, I'm 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 on TikTok, but I stopped doing it there. To be honest, it's just time. I'm I really am waffling my response. I'd love to know your views, Debbie. I'd love to know your view as well. So yeah, let, let's just use this as a the starting point in that conversation. Anyway, I've waffled. Let's go on to the next book. The next book is Will You Read This Please by Joanna Cannon. I was in a bookshop. I know that's a shocker, and this book just spoke to me and I thought I I really need to read this. I need to obtain this. I need to purchase this book and read it. And the tagline is living with mental illness, extraordinary stories from ordinary people. Listen to the blurb on this one. How do we give a voice to those who so often remain unheard? Will you read this please is a frank and impactful collection of 12 stories as told to our best British writers based on the lived experience of people who have faced mental illness in the UK. Edited by Joanna Cannon, the stories told here are powerful, resonant and heart-stopping. This is a groundbreaking and unforgettable collection, shining a light on the stigma and isolation of living with mental illness, while also showing the strength and resilience of the human spirit. Now, how many people are there in this book? There's the introduction and then there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, twelve stories. Um let me just read you a, f a few sentences from the introduction, which is written by Joanna Cannon. Before I began writing novels, I worked as a hospital doctor and my chosen speciality was psychiatry. It was all I ever wanted to do. My uncle had a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia and I was fascinated by the many twists and tangles of the human mind, even as a child. So what this is, you've got the 12 stories. They are stories told by you know, real people who have really gone through it. And then those stories are not altered, but just sort of written up by very well-known authors, including Tracy Chevalier, Claire McIntosh, Joanna Cannon, all sorts of really brilliant authors. Jen Ashworth, Benjamin Johncock, Catherine Cho. Oh, oh, I could go up, lots of them. And I found each one to be very different and very moving. There were some stories that I still remember vividly that just moved me, shocked me. I was engrossed. I had to keep reading. Other stories less so. But I think it just depends what you're going through in your own in your own life. I'll be honest, there was one story that was about someone who suffered from entomophobia and I don't know if you've ever come across that, but it's, it's a fear of being sick. And I've, I have that. I was hospitalised when I was really young with that. And funnily enough, uh, they, did, they never knew about the condition then. They just kept saying, 
they couldn't understand why I kept feeling sick. So they put me in a bed next to someone who kept throwing up. <laughs> Let me tell you, that was an experience I remember very vividly. Deeply, deeply disturbing and unpleasant. Anyway, <laughs> they'd come round. Philippa, why have you got your head under the pillow? Because. Anyway, I digress. But for me to read, I've never read anybody. I've heard about the condition when I was an adult. I came across the condition. There was an article in the paper. I was just like, oh, my goodness, this is what I had. Why didn't they know? And to read something about someone else who has gone through it, gone through it worse than I had, and they're still dealing with it. I, I am, but not as much. But still, uh, to read it moved me profoundly, and the many other stories moved me profoundly. I think it's a book that I would recommend everybody read, because whether you're going through it or not, you will come into contact with people who are. And they're, you know, short chapters. You can read the book quite quickly. I think for people who are going through it as well, it's helpful to know that they're not on their own and that there is help. I, I just think it's absolutely brilliant. A hard read at times. Sorry, my voice is going. I'm still not fully recovered. A hard read at times, but superb. Will you read this, please? And I repeat that title to you. Will you read this, please? Bravo, Joanna Cannon. Excellent. And and everybody else. Anyway, gosh, this is going to be a long episode. I'm so sorry. Let's get on. Home fire. Camilla Shamsey. Let me read you the blurb. Isma is free. After years spent raising her twin siblings in the wake of their mother's death, she is finally studying in America, resuming a dream long deferred. But she can't stop worrying about Anika, her beautiful, headstrong sister back in London, or their brother, Parvez, who's disappeared in pursuit of his own dream to prove himself to the dark legacy of the jihadist father he never knew. Then Eamon enters the sisters' lives. Handsome and privileged, he inhabits the London world's away from theirs. As the son of a powerful British Muslim politician, Eamon has his own birthright to live up to, or defy. Is he to be a chance at love? The means of Parvez's salvation? Two families' fates are inextricably, devastatingly entwined in this searing novel that asks, what sacrifices will we make in the name of love? And this was, uh, this has won so many prizes. Women's Prize for Fiction 2018, shortlisted for the Costa, longlisted for the Booker, uh, Guardian Book of the Year, Observer Telegraph, everyone's Book of the Year. And let me, sorry, let me do the first few sentences. Isma was going to miss her flight. The ticket wouldn't be refunded because the airline took no responsibility for passengers who arrived at the airport three hours ahead of the departure time and were escorted to an interrogation room. She had expected the interrogation, but not the hours of waiting that would precede it, nor that it would feel so humiliating to have the contents of her suitcase inspected. I did this book because I was doing it for book club. We're meeting tonight actually to discuss it. So I'll be interested to hear what everyone said. It was in some ways an easier read than I thought it would be. Uh, but at times I found it quite hard to get through. It's a typical book club book. It's not one that I would have picked up myself. But by Jiminy Joseph, it's a good book. Uh, the ending, good Lord, had to had to Google people's views on that. Uh, it's a book that I would recommend, but it's a substantial book, not in the number of pages, but it's there's, there's a lot to go through. But it's fascinating, moving, incredible, profound. Yeah, very, very good. Last book, Frontier, Grace Curtis. I I bought this book. It had purple sprayed edges. I was in. I was hooked. Let me read you the blurb about this one. In the distant future, climate change has reduced Earth to a hard scrabble wasteland. Saints and sinners, lawmakers and sheriffs, gunslingers and horse thieves abound. Folks are as diverse and divided as they've ever been, except in their shared suspicions when a stranger comes to town. One night a ship falls from the sky, bringing the planet's first visitor in 300 years. She's armed, she's scared and she's looking for someone. Let's do the first sentence. The Hunt for the Fallen Star. It was a night like any other on earth. Silence on the land, stillness in the sky. Stars glittered like sunken jewels, and from the ground below, human eyes regarded them as one might a benign tumour. 
Something trembled. A shard of silver detached itself from the great black canopy and hurtled down in an arc, ember hot, vomiting smoke. It landed in a shock of sand and debris that rose high into the air before settling back down with a sigh. So, I, 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 what I loved on the back is it says, love, loss, laser guns. I thought it was great. Um, it's a it is a lovely queer romance. I love the humour in it. I love the setting. For the first hundred pages, I was completely immersed, chuckling away to myself, loving it. Then, and this is why it's my fault, there were a couple of days where I couldn't get back to read it. And when I did get back, I found it hard to get back into. It's completely my fault. I did finish it and I enjoyed it. But I kept losing track of where things were. As I say, my fault. If you're into sort of sci-fi, dystopian, quirky, funny, good, then I think you would really enjoy it. And I think it's a book I'm going to go back and read and read in one sitting because I just need to devote it, my time to it. I think I was very unfair on the book. And if another book comes out, I'm... I'm going to read it. So what am I saying? I'm saying it's my fault. I hold my hands up. Completely my fault. But I need to finish this episode. What books have we covered today? We've covered The Last Goodbye by Tim Weaver, The Birdcage by Freya Berry. Will you read this, please? Edited by Joanna Cannon, Home Fire by Camilla Shamsey and Frontier by Grace Curtis. I am going off to plump my cushions and buy even more. I hope you're well. I hope you're doing OK. I'm sorry for the slight chestiness. I've still got a bit of the lurgy, but it's nearly gone. It's all fine. Just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.